that drives you very quickly to your own core of focus and self-discipline and control. Honestly, you've got a patient open on the table. You might be in the belly, you might be in extremity sewing blood vessels, and then the lights go out or the rocket hits. You realize as the surgeon, you've got that individual's life and limb in your own hands, but you're also leading a team. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel Dr. Todd E. Rasmussen to War Docs. Dr. Rasmussen received his medical degree from the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and trained in general surgery at Wolford Hall Air Force Medical Center. He returned to the Mayo Clinic for fellowship training in vascular surgery. He has deployed multiple times to combat zones and has held numerous leadership positions in military medicine before retiring and returning to the Mayo Clinic as Department of Surgery Vice Chair for Education. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about Dr. Rasmussen's career trajectory that led him into academic medicine and translational research. Colonel Rasmussen has had enormous impact on how the military prepares for and provides excellent care on the battlefield and at home, and he shares his insights and lessons learned. He talks about the transition from active duty to his current leadership position at the Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Todd Rasmussen to War Docs. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to you and your team for hosting me. I've become a big fan of your podcast, and it's an honor to talk to you tonight and excited for our discussion. Dr. Rasmussen, Thank you for joining us so much. Tell us about your entry into military medicine. Did I read your bio correctly that you initially studied pharmacy in college? <laughs> that goes back quite a ways, but I did. I think initially I was a little bit intimidated by the thought of med school. When I started at the University of Kansas, I wasn't sure if I could compete academically. And I'm sort of I'm a people person and I was interested in medicine. I thought pharmacy school would be a good start. University of Kansas has a great school of pharmacy. So I started there. And after about two years, I took a summer job and believe it or not, as what we used to call an orderly at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City. And my orderly job was in the emergency room. That was in the days before emergency medicine training programs. So I got to hang out in the ER as an orderly. I think my name tag that I still have says hospital assistant or HA on it. It was that summer where I thought I love medicine. I truly loved pharmacy school as well, but I sort of turned, made a change then. And by that time, I realized I could compete, I guess, or be competitive academically and change to sort of pre-med. I finished pharmacy school because I love my classmates in the school. And at the time, it was a great prep for the MCATs. And I was very briefly a registered pharmacist in the state of Kansas and the state of Minnesota, although I went straight into med school. You went to med school at the Mayo Clinic and you're back there now. What got you interested in surgery? And tell us a little bit about your experience training in surgery at Wolford Hall in San Antonio. Like many of us, I think our careers are influenced by people and places where we've been. And certainly when I came to Rochester, Minnesota as a med student, as naive as I was, I realized I was one of the cornerstones of American surgery. I was young and impressionable. And I thought, what a great place. How could you not want to be a surgeon being here? 
And then people, right? I met two or three prior military surgeons who were consultants here at Mayo Clinic, one of whom specifically trained at Wilford Hall. He was an Air Force Academy grad, Jeb Hallett, and he was on staff here as a vascular surgeon when I was a medical student. And he really steered me to Wilford Hall for my general surgery residency. And that residency was tough. I was just looking back at some notes. At this point, it's kind of like a time capsule as I look back to some of my notes from residency. And that was a hard residency. It was a pyramided program, like many were. There weren't really any prelims those days, and there weren't categoricals. So it was a hard residency. It was very competitive, but it was also, I think, sort of a refining fire for me. I loved it. And at that time, Wilford Hall was a level one trauma center, as BAMC was, Brook Army Medical Center. I loved the program. So I did a year of research, actually came back to Mayo Clinic for a year of research. Turned out to be a six-year general surgery residency. So what sparked your interest in becoming a vascular surgeon? Mentors, for sure. I mean, Jeb Hallett was very influential as a vascular surgery consultant here at Mayo and a mentor of mine. So for sure, him and a few other of the folks I'd met in med school, the vascular surgery group and the legacy at Wilford Hall was really very strong and had roots that I'm just now really discovering fully back to some of the earliest fellowships in the country. Their trainees had ended up at Wilford Hall. And so I was privileged to fall into that legacy by, I guess, Providence. And I also realized there was a sense of the military need. It felt like I would get a ton of support if I went into one of the most militarily relevant subspecialties, which was vascular. And that was sort of ironic if things turned out in my career, prophetic maybe, because I ended up getting a ton of support in a long career as a vascular surgeon. I mean, I like the content, the technical challenges, and the patients. So kind of a combination of things. So after you finished your general surgery residency, did you go directly into fellowship at the Mayo Clinic or did you do something between that time? No, I went straight through. I did six years, finished in 1999, and then did a two-year vascular fellowship back here at Mayo. It was a lot, PGY-7, PGY-8, but it was all very rewarding. I went straight through. My residency at Wilford Hall in San Antonio was really good preparation and the fellowship training here was great. Ironically, I was burned out. I think I was tired of the emotional load of trauma at the end of my general surgery residency. It's a lot. We did a lot of trauma at Wilford Hall. I did a trauma rotation over at Herman Hospital with Red Duke. This was fantastic training, but I remember being a fellow at Mayo Clinic and I remember the sense of relief almost that I wasn't going to focus on trauma. I was just going to be a good blood vessel surgeon, figure out how to fix broken blood vessels and diseased blood vessels. That was definitely true during my fellowship, but of course, then events changed. So you finished your residency in 1999, and then two years later, your fellowship in 2001. And it just so happens that you were assigned to Andrews Air Force Base and Walter Reed Hospital as your first duty assignment. Tell us about 9-11 since you were in the Washington, D.C. area at that time. That was something. The end of the academic year was June or early July of 01. I took my uh, wife and kids across country from Minnesota to Andrews. Just really started my reintegrating back into active duty. My fellowship at Mayo Clinic was obviously deferred training, so I wasn't wearing a uniform. I mean, I was training. So I had spent really the month of July and August kind of getting re-outfitted and started seeing clinics at Malcolm Grow Medical Center at Andrews Air Force Base. 
I knew the Uniform Services University. I mean, other important mentors of mine certainly were Dr. Rich, Norman Rich, and a few of the senior surgeons at Walter Reed, what we'd call now Walter Reed Classic on Georgia Avenue. So I knew them and had made contact with them that summer, but I was just really getting started. And the morning of 9-11-2001, I was seeing clinic, one of my earlier clinics there, probably at Malcolm Grove. And like most people around the country, early to mid-morning, I started getting either emails or phone calls. Are you okay? Or have you seen the television? My clinic was interrupted. We saw the initial plane crash on television and the second plane crash sort of on television. And then quickly thereafter, the leadership at Malcolm Grow and at Andrews and, of course, the national capital region sprung into action and sort of closed the bases, obviously, and sort of secured the bases and began to respond to the casualties at the Pentagon. I didn't go down to the Pentagon because I just arrived at Andrews. I jokingly, at least partially joking, it's partially true, tell people that I hardly knew how to put on a uniform. I was just back into the active duty. So there was two or three FSTs that had been Malcolm Grove colleagues and friends of mine who went down to the Pentagon and I stayed at Andrews. None of us knew what we would find. And I was locked down at Andrews all night until President Bush, he wouldn't let anyone leave until he landed at Andrews at one or two in the morning on the 12th of September. Obviously didn't see any casualties at Malcolm Grow. I mean, there weren't many casualties, honestly, treated at the military treatment facilities that day, unfortunately. But it was a staggering day for the country, obviously. <laughs> Pivotal day for the country, the world, and certainly on a very, very microcosm, me too. That day, obviously, was pivotal in shaping my career. So soon after that, we're involved in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, Iraqi Freedom in Iraq. Tell us your impressions of the early days of the war. And as a vascular surgeon, what were you seeing and what did we need to improve? Probably September and October of that year, two or three of my senior Army mentors Sean O'Donnell, David Gillespie, Jim Goff, they deployed. The Army took them and they sort of went downrange. So I was privileged or tasked to begin to come over to Walter Reed and help cover the vascular surgery fellowship and the training program at Walter Reed and then the practice. I remember vividly when casualties started coming back, they would land at Andrews Air Force Base, the air staging facility at Andrews. And then they would take a bus to Walter Reed on Georgia Avenue, and they'd bring a busload in. And what was, I think, most striking was that we did not understand soft tissue wound management. It was awful, honestly. It was sort of miraculous. We were getting wounded, mostly soldiers, some Marines, but mostly soldiers, honestly. There were four or five days after injury, but nobody had really changed their dressing. They might have had a short stop in Germany, but we were far from a sort of an integrated trauma system. And we, at the time, were not using the back or repeated debridement. So what I recall was the severity of mangled extremities and our sort of nascent understanding and treatment of massive soft tissue injuries. We had never seen it later in the war because these patients would stay downrange and get debrided again, or they'd stay in launch tool and get debrided. But early in the days, they would come back to Walter Reed almost from Bagram directly. So you said that some of your colleagues were deployed and they're involved in vascular repairs, vascular surgery downrange, and those patients are coming back and you're seeing them. What was your conversation with those colleagues about the extent of the injury and the follow-up and what you were seeing when they finally arrived back in CONUS? 
The other thing that was limited was communication downrange. The combat support hospitals were also very nascent. So communication was sporadic. We were able to communicate with colleagues downrange and the feedback loop was established pretty quickly within months. It didn't take years to establish the feedback loop that, hey, hold these patients for repeated debridements downrange, or we needed to set up launch stool to get repeated debridements in place for launch stool, for example. And initially there was, a, I think, a primitive understanding of the potential for temporary vascular shunts to restore perfusion and sort of as a damage control adjunct. Initially, they would place shunts downrange and then they would air vac patients back to Walter Reed with shunts in place. And that was too far. So those shunts would often be thrombosed, for example. But the feedback glue, it stood up quickly within months, I would say, not necessarily days. I mean, days and weeks would go by. It'd be hard to communicate because the theater was so raw at that time, uncharted. But I would say by the spring of 2002, many of those whether it was soft tissue injury management, use of shunts, fixation of fractures, management of TBI, you could see the system beginning to kick into place. So you mentioned the vascular shunts. That was a technique to restore physiology, but you also were becoming a staff during the endovascular revolution. And so for the listeners that don't know, endovascular is the vascular surgery term for minimally invasive techniques. So you can access a blood vessel remotely and repair whatever pathology exists in another part of the body. Tell us how the military started to use the endovascular techniques, because you then moved to Wilford Hall to a level one trauma center where you could have both the civilian revolution that was occurring be implemented within the military system. We saw early in 2003, as you're referring to, let's say 2002 to 2004 or five, we saw the benefit of catheter-based management or endovascular management of certain forms of vascular injury, meaning we saw at Wilford Hall or at BAMSI civilian trauma centers, the benefit of using a covered stent, for example, to seal a broken blood vessel from within. Those were new techniques, stents and stent grafts, for example, but we saw their benefit. The benefit was being published in the civilian literature. And yet when we would go downrange, none of the combat support hospitals or the Air Force Theater Hospital had any endovascular supplies in them. Those level two or three echelon medical centers or treatment facilities downrange were really outfitted from the Vietnam War. So they had clamps, scalpels, and retractors, but no endovascular tools. And so we initially just literally began taking sheaths, wires, balloons, and stents and stent grafts in our go bag. You'd put it with your BDUs or your ABUs. You'd take a dozen micropuncture kits and sheaths and some stents. At that time, they were fluency covered stents and Viabon. We'd take occlusion balloons and the deployments, both with the Army and the Air Force, it was such a revolving door. We began quickly to know people who were downrange and how to ship them things. And honestly, we would use DHL and FedEx to get sheaths and catheters downrange, for example, stent grafts. I don't want to overstate that. It wasn't a lot, but that's how it started. It was just the urgency. And as you guys know, it's the uncommon vascular injury that's really amenable to that. So it's not like we were using those techniques a lot, but there's clear benefit in certain injury patterns. And we were giving that benefit to civilians in the U.S., and then we would go deploy and we'd say, why can't we give the same benefit to injured service members? So initially, we were just taking that stuff in our bag. Just so our listeners know, a covered stent 
is a metal cage that has fabric that goes along the outside of it so that it can seal the blood vessel and allow the blood to no longer go outside the blood vessel, but stay within the blood vessel. That's right. Yeah. As you were describing that experience, I was remembering my experience in 2005 deployed as a urologist where we use a lot of endovascular stuff. And you're right. The way we got it was, hey, buddy, could you send it to me via FedEx so we can get a stent or some kind of catheter? But you had the opportunity to deploy to Iraq, to Balad in 2005. Tell us a little bit about that experience and any memorable cases or really good lessons learned. It was a very formidable experience. I think it was the theater, as you know, was very raw at that time. I mean, it was a major at the time. And Balad Air Base, like the Green Zone and many places throughout that theater were dangerous places. I mean, they'd routinely get rocketed. It was unlike anything I had seen, for sure. It was during sort of the second part of the Fallujah campaign. I guess my memories were just operating so much. We did not have residents or trainees. There might have been a couple of emergency physicians, but it was really a group of eight to 10 surgeons, seven or eight anesthesia providers. I hadn't worked so hard since residency. I had referred to sort of the refining fire of my residency and how hard that residency was. And I'm Absolutely convinced that it prepared me for the deployments, especially those first few deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were just so busy. One thing that struck me was the joint nature of casualty care. I was operating on a lot of Marines from Fallujah, from the Battle of Fallujah, as an Air Force surgeon. And those Marines were brought to me by Army Dustoff. At that point, now this is 2005, so the joint trauma system was really coming into its own, thanks to people like Brian Eastridge and Don Jenkins, John Holcomb. And every day, of course, there was headaches and challenges. But in the end, the joint nature of the fight was something that stuck with me. Tell the listeners a little bit about what it's like to be operating and having rockets landing on the base that you're operating at. I think you really get to the core of your own mental discipline and your own focus when that happens. It's really difficult to prepare for, and in some ways, difficult to describe in retrospect, but it wasn't frightening. I think it was just, as I said, it drives you very quickly to your own core of focus and self-discipline and control. Honestly, you've got a patient open on the table. You might be in the belly, you might be in extremity, sewing blood vessels, and then the lights go out or the rocket hits. You realize as the surgeon, you've got that individual's life or limb in your own hands, but you're also leading a team. I will never forget. In fact, one of my most striking memories is how our very young enlisted corps, they were shook by it. I remember multiple times young techs standing next to me, handing me instruments and crying, and they were shaking. They were literally shaking in tears. We were operating on another service member, and there's another one and another one. And I remember thinking I had gone through the refining fire of my residency, and I was an officer, and I should be prepared. But I remember some of our scrub techs, surgical assistants who were young enlisted, I'll never forget them and their dedication, but I think in those times, you really realize you've got to lead them. You've got to be there for the team as a surgeon and the officer in the OR. Yeah, we had one guest that said, you sometimes forget that that scrub tech across from you may have been playing a tuba in the band last year. Yeah. And now they're in the middle of the war and someone's got an open abdomen in front of them. It's difficult to put words to. I remember 
2008 deployment back to Iraq. So in 2005, we operated on a fair number of U.S. service members, but we honestly didn't lose many during my four or five months of deployment. And we operated on a lot of post-nationals and probably enemy combatants during that first deployment. The second deployment, we had some bad luck when we lost in the OR or half a dozen service members, U.S. service members. It's beyond words. But <laughs> if I'm not careful, you guys will get me emotional here. It's indescribable. You lose a U.S. service member on the table, and we sort of would have a patriot ceremony then. It's gripping, certainly for me, but I felt like I should be ready for this. I went through the refining fire, a surgical residency. I'm an officer, and the man, the enlisted corps, I just have so much respect for, admiration for, for their dedication to jump into such unsettling circumstances to be part of the team. What did you share with those enlisted members as their team leader in the operating room as you knew you were handling a difficult situation and you knew that their emotions were on the same pathway? In those situations, being human and letting them know we're all in it together and that you care for them personally and for their physical safety. And I think just being human is the best thing. And you got to really keep your own wits about you, which is hard. You're tired and your own emotions are frazzled. But I think being human to those folks is really, really important. And then finding them afterwards. When I was finishing my military career, I would mentor young officers who were going downrange and they'd say, yeah, we might not be that busy. We're not going to do enough cases. We're not going to operate enough. Sort of limited tolerance for that sort of complaining. I mean, there's always opportunities to lead. And if you're not operating, then go lead. Go be a leader. Find some enlisted folks who are extremely dedicated and lead them, teach them, listen to them. It's not all about you doing cases. That will come. Don't waste your deployments lamenting that you're not doing, quote unquote, doing cases, find ways to lead. It's a once in a lifetime experience. Soon your deployment will be over. And if all you did was complain about not being busy enough, I think it's diminished. You mentioned the refining fire and training, and you are well-trained, Wolford Hall General Surgery, Mayo Clinic, vascular surgery. But when you got there and you're on the ground, was there anything that was just really challenging that maybe you weren't completely prepared for? Clinically, obviously, it's a war zone. It's different from anything you've ever experienced. But anything clinically that you said, boy, I wish I was better prepared to take care of X, Y, or Z. The soft tissue injuries were just, they were something I'd never seen. And I think management of soft tissue injuries, that'd probably be my answer. Also, operating without your usual kit. I mean, I think that's also part of it. It's one thing to do a medial visceral rotation with well-lit OR and a nice Omni retractor or a Thompson retractor. But when you're trying to do a medial visceral rotation with a Balfour retractor and handhelds. So I think being skilled enough to operate with limited resources is one. And then I think the other is just the magnitude of the soft tissue injuries, which I had not seen before that. One of the things that I find interesting about your career is that you were a surgical instructor for the Defense Institute of Medical Operations. And so you were sent to Morocco, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Tell us about that program and what was the purpose of your trip? Yeah, that was a real pleasure in a lot of ways. This is just my own impression on it. They were almost State Department missions. I think we were sent into at-risk countries where we were trying to soft power. Samuel and I used to write about soft power. 
And medicine is a universal language. Surgery is a universal language. We would go into these countries where we were trying to establish better relations. And we would show up as medics with knowledge, with experience in trauma systems, trauma preparation, surgery. So the missions I always felt were almost more of a State Department mission than military. And we would work with the host military medical academies of those countries. We went to the Russian Military Medical Academy, for example, in St. Petersburg. Our Uniformed Services University just turned 50 years old. Their equivalent is 300 years old. And we went to the equivalent of the Uniformed Services University in Morocco, for example. We would teach. We would do basically the emergency war surgery course. We would have didactics, lectures. And then we would have live tissue models where we would do training on shunt placement, vascular anastomosis, damage control surgery, basically. And it was usually a week-long course, and sometimes you'd do four or five courses over the course of six to eight weeks. So in 2008 to 2010, you came back to San Antonio, chief of surgery. You were the surgery flight commander, kind of in charge of the beneficiary mission stateside. And you've got your staff that's being called out to go and fight in Afghanistan and Iraq. The reservists are coming in. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. How was that managing that to take care of the wartime mission, the peacetime mission, the beneficiary mission, and working with the reserves? I've mentioned how junior I was or thought I was in 2001. Now, fast forward, now all of a sudden, get ready. Now I'm a not an 04, I'm an 05 or 06. Now I have junior surgeons who are, as you're describing, having to go down range. The other thing that was very unsettling at San Antonio at that time was the BRAC merger between Bamsey and Wilford Hall. And that was almost as unsettling as the wars because how were we to bring together these surgery departments? I talked about how seamless things were down range between the services. That was not as seamless as the BRAC came. That was a challenge. Also, just I think you find and you develop your leadership capacity to mentor and to give reassurance, some content and instruction to younger surgeons as they're going down range, or in our case, having to close Wilford Hall and start up the San Antonio Military Medical Center at PAMSI. It was a very difficult time. So during that same period of time, you then deployed to Bagram in Afghanistan Tell us about that deployment, the differences between that and Iraq, and any memorable cases. By this time now, both theaters of war, certainly Afghanistan, were much more mature. The medical rules of engagement or medro were pretty well established. It wasn't as busy as the first couple of deployments, just volume-wise. We had more equipment. At this point, we had a trauma-specific endovascular inventory, for example. Now, after four or five years, we actually had a fair number of endovascular supplies for use of stents and balloons, et cetera. And so I think the facilities were a little more better equipped and such. We were still busy for sure, but nothing like the first two operative deployments in Iraq. Military medicine really has a gem that not everybody knows about, and that is the U.S. Army Institute for Surgical Research. You had the opportunity to be the deputy commander there from 2010 to 2013 which was a very busy time for learning lessons and implementing stuff to fix it for the next time. What were the focus areas of research when you were there and what ultimately became fielded for battlefield care? You often can't plan the opportunities that come your way. When 
unique opportunities, maybe asymmetric opportunities or opportunities you didn't think you would ever be offered come your way, give them thought and be ready for them. I was asked by Lauren Blackburn and John Holcomb and Basil Pruitt as an Air Force guy to be the deputy commander of the storied Army Institute of Surgical Research. That was something I never saw coming. And when I was first offered that position or encouraged to take it, it was asymmetric. It was in a way backwards in my mind, but I had good mentors at that time, Dr. Maddox, John Woodson, Norm Rich. I had good mentors who gave me that sort of advice. And taking that position at the ISR was another pivotal point in my career. It really opened up resources and relationships. And I thought I had a pretty nice lab and innovation space at Lackland. But now this was the ISR, which was magnitudes larger. I think the biggest focus areas at that time, the Joint Trauma System and its registry, the JTTR, the Joint Theater Trauma Registry, at this time now had identified a couple of things. One, it identified the potentially preventable death from non-compressible torso hemorrhage. We did pretty well at this time with tourniquets now by 2010 and 11. Tourniquets had been sort of refined and retrained. Russ Cotwall and others had implemented tourniquets, but there was just no internal tourniquet. We were still losing soldiers and Marines, mostly from bleeding within the abdomen and pelvis. So that was one, I think, an area was how do we manage coagulopathy? How do we control non-compressible torso hemorrhage? And another area was limb salvage. How do we salvage limbs so that they work? We had pretty good limb salvage rates, but the legs we were saving, mostly some arms, but the legs we were saving, they didn't work very well. So I think those were two areas that were a major focus at the ISR when I started. So a lot of the research that happened in the ISR was huge wins. I mean, they were great wins, but there were a few challenges, a few ideas that really never panned out. What did you find was your greatest challenge in implementing the translational research that would then be implemented on the battlefield? I think a big barrier that exists is partnering with private entities. I think as academics, as officers, we're brought up to kind of resist partnering with private companies or investors, angel investors, if you will, or startup companies, because somehow that has gotten bad rap. But the fact of the matter is that we can do great preclinical research, whether that's on the bench or in the animal lab, we can sort of sketch out Home Depot models of this or that. But unless you really engage the private side, the private sector, the ability to get products, the investment that's required to get products to the bedside, it's almost out of reach. And so I think that was a barrier. You could get some approaches and technologies to a certain extent down the development pathway, but if you couldn't partner effectively with private entities, investment, et cetera, I think that was a limitation. Regulatory, working with the FDA was another, we could get products to a certain point and then to get them cleared from a regulatory standpoint was also a challenge. Some of those challenges are there for a reason to protect patients, and to keep some necessary separation between the government investment and private industry. But those are two areas where I think we hit barriers with many products. Do you have any example that you'd be willing to share with us that describes how the process would work in a good situation? Tourniquets were one, right? I mean, you could use a bandana, you could use a loading strap from the pallet, you could use that as a tourniquet, but those were not really refined tourniquets. To really refine and completely develop the extremity tourniquet, the CAT, what became the combat application tourniquet, I mean, we needed to partner with industry. That happened pretty quickly. And that was, I think, a success. 
the VAC, the negative pressure wound therapy. I mentioned the overwhelming nature of the soft tissue injuries. We just couldn't control them early in the wars. And I think the VAC, the closed negative pressure wound therapy, that is another example where we partner successfully with the private side to bring a technology that really helped us manage soft tissue injuries. From medication standpoint, tranexamic acid was a success, the temporary vascular shunts to a degree, and then the Reboa catheter, which has come through and now still being studied in its clinical implementation and adoption. But that, I think, is an example of a product that came from a whiteboard to a Home Depot version to the bedside in a pretty short period of time. So those are some examples. You may know others. You hit the highlights, though. Yeah. You had the opportunity to go back to Bagram, and this is now 10 years after the war started in Afghanistan. Tell us the big differences from the early years to then. What had we learned? You'd mentioned before that in 2005, buddies are mailing you catheters via FedEx and DHL. What had the military learned in getting technology to the battlefield, and what hadn't it learned? We learned so much. In a way, we'd become too good at combat casualty care, sadly, right? We've been at it now for 10 or 11 years, the longest period of combat operations in our country's history, really. We had what they called the JC2RT, the Joint Theater Combat Research Team. We literally had researchers deployed. We had trauma abstractors deployed. They were abstracting data for the Joint Theater Trauma Registry, which was providing transformational data for the military on advancing casualty care. I mean, in a way, the Joint Theater Trauma Registry was more important and more robust than the civilian equivalent in the National Trauma Database. We were nailing the joint trauma system. I mean, that was really good. We were refining medevac. We were learning from the Brits and their MERT. They had a physician-led medevac platform. And with people like Bob Mabry, Russ Cotwall, as I mentioned, and the TCCC group, we were studying how to improve our dust-off, literally fine-tuning what sort of capabilities we would put on dust-off. We were fine-tuning a lot of things. By this time, we were using whole blood, downrange. We'd gone from using saline. My first deployment, we had a lot of open abdomens. I remember that. It was before the component-based blood resuscitation in 2005. We find a lot of that. What did we not learn? We hadn't learned how to stop getting hurt. We still had a lot of people getting hurt. And I think in a way, the combat casualty care system was ready. We were set by that time. What we needed was our soldiers and Marines and airmen and sailors. We needed them to stop getting hurt. We'd been doing it for 12 years. We had the system set up and it was a joy to work in at that point, frankly. I mean, it was hard, but compared to 2004 and five. I got the opportunity to go to Balad in 2010 and my endourological OR in that hospital was actually probably nicer than Bamsi. I was wondering in Bagram in 2012, what was your setup for endovascular type interventions? It was ridiculously good. I mean, not by Mayo Clinic standards or University of Texas Health Science standards, but we did coil embolization of vertebral artery pseudoaneurysms, cases where we did thoracic stent grafts for blunt aortic injury in locals. By civilian standards, it was still relatively rudimentary, but we were doing pretty complex endovascular procedures for certain forms of vascular injury. I shouldn't overstate it. These are the rare case, but we certainly had the capability by then to use stents, balloons, stent grafts, et cetera, and coils. Can you imagine that? I mean, we were doing coil embolization of pelvic fractures. I know that's amazing. 
Well, all this technology is advancing. It seems like it set you up pretty well for your next job, which was the director of the Department of Defense Combat Casualty Research Program at Fort Detrick, Maryland. This had a $200 million budget for combat casualty care research. What were the priorities and what outcomes resulted from the research that you were part of with battlefield care development? That was the opportunity then to go to the Army's higher headquarters. So the only thing that was more weird than me as an Air Force guy, as the deputy commander at the ISR, was as an Air Force guy at Fort Detrick, (laughs) the Army's Medical Research and Materiel Command as the JPC-6 chair. I had such good Army mentors, General Gilman, General Carvalho, General Fox, who was originally at BAMC. I mean, these were people who had faith in me as an Air Force officer. Even though we didn't wear the same uniform, they had confidence in me to be in what had been traditionally Army positions. The broader combat casualty care research program, that taught me TBI, it taught me burn, it taught me all sorts, the, the breadth of combat casualty care, not just vascular injury and resuscitation. And TBI, by that time, had really become mitigating the impact of traumatic brain injury. TBI was a big focus. Obviously, trying to mitigate death from non-compressible torso hemorrhage remained a priority. And then I think improving functional limb salvage and amputee care and recovery from extremity injury was another priority. And the products that came from them, I mean, I think management protocols for traumatic brain injury, I think there was several advances in the management of TBI. And then I think by that time, we recognized how best to resuscitate, to fill the tank and shocked patients. The use of TXA, tranexamic acid had become more commonplace thanks to folks like John Holcomb and others, we had refined the recipe for blood component-based resuscitation. We were just learning whole blood. Endovascular techniques like Reboa were becoming developed and now commercialized for clinical study. The use of temporary vascular shunts, for sure, those were things that sort of come to mind, I guess, is the main sort of products. So you finished your military career at, we'll call it New Walter Reed, as a vascular surgeon you transitioned to complex vascular practice at Mayo Clinic. What advice would you give besides growing a really sharp beard to military (laughs) physicians as they transition from military practice? If they want to enter a civilian workforce at a really respected, complex academic center. Be patient with your career. Some of the mentor lines that I got over the years was you might be able to do it all, but you can't do it all at the same time. Learn when you're not operating a lot. For us as surgeons, you always want to maintain baseline of surgical competency and currency, but periods of time in the military where you're asked to be a leader, be a leader and don't complain about not doing too many cases. Those leadership skills will help you when you transition out. In fact, that may be why you're recruited to a civilian practice is because you can lead. They've got people who've done 500 cases a year, but they don't have people who've had experiences like we had in the military. So take time to nurture those aspects of your career. We have the fortune of developing and maintaining civilian relationships throughout our career. So I think where you trained, where you want to practice, who your mentors are on the civilian side, maintain those relationships during your military career. Seek civilian mentors, seek input from and connection with the civilian side they will become important to you as you leave the military. And then part of, to tag on to my first comment, maintain your professional standard. I mean, be an excellent officer. I think many times we have opportunities in the civilian side because 
we've had these opportunities as leaders, as professionals, that's unique. And if you think about it, as military officers, we have the one or 2% opportunity. One or 2% of the United States population serves, and we have that opportunity. And it's a privilege for us. It doesn't always feel that way. But when you begin to leave your military service, you realize that it's a unique opportunity that we have, and it may very well serve you in your transition, probably will serve you as you transition from military service. So Kevin and I were talking about your interview this morning, and he says, you have to be sure and ask him a question about the program that he did as a transition to civilian practice. Have him explain to us about that program that you did just prior to your retirement. So Mayo had a GME-approved 90-day fellowship for the Advanced Day Ordered Fellowship. The Air Force approved me to do that. They gave me permissive TDY, basically, to participate in that fellowship through the consultant's office. And I did that as an active duty. My last 90 days of active duty were as an advanced aortic fellow at Mayo. Then I started my terminal leave after that. You may say, well, that sounds like a racket. How'd Rasmussen do that? I mean, the fact of the matter is, as a vascular surgeon, we don't have the civilian partnerships that the trauma surgeons do. Our trauma surgeons in the military have partnerships where they can be trauma surgeons at Shock Trauma, Cincinnati, Miami. There's dozens of them. But as vascular surgeons, we didn't really have those. And so opportunities like the Advanced Aortic Fellowship at Mayo Clinic, they're important for us to explore and develop as vascular surgeons so that people like yourself, Wayne, can also maintain and grow your clinical and technical excellence during your active duty years. So that's what it was. It was permissive TDY for 90 days, basically, or maybe it was 60. That's what it was. I think it's a great program because the practice of vascular surgery, for instance, in the military is different than what would be at the Mayo Clinic. And if there wasn't some way to bridge between one practice to another, you would be set up for not as much success as you would if you could have this transition. I think it's a great program. We've focused on those types of relationships for trauma surgeons and the trauma community in the military for understandable reasons. But arguably, they should exist for our other surgical subspecialties, urology, vascular surgery, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery. And what I mean by that is, let's say urologists or cardiac surgeons who are active duty, they're not trauma surgeons, but I believe facilitating partnerships with certain civilian entities where they can go work or train, not really train because they're trained, but maintain currency. And I think that's important. Not just the trauma surgeons we need to maintain currency for. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the Mayo Clinic currently, and do you miss anything about military medicine? I feel like I'm in the best practice in the country right now, best practice in the world. I have just incredibly talented and supportive partners in the vascular surgery division here. I'm trying to keep up with them and their skills. They're (laughs) patient and supportive of me as I do that. I'm the vice chair of education for our department of surgery. I help with our department chair, Mike Kendrick interface with our school of GME. We have about 150 surgical trainees here at Mayo in our department of surgery, not including ortho and cardiac. So I'm sort of stepped from the research realm into the education realm as a stretch, which is good. The practice is busy, but I'm all clinical now, which is really good. In a way to come full circle, even as we maybe wrap up this hour, I feel like I'm finally getting to do what I train to do. What do you miss about military medicine? I miss the people. I miss the patients. I miss the mission. I will say I was privileged to work for the military health system in a 20-year period where the country had to listen to military surgery. 
We had hundreds, if not thousands, of injured service members each week. And the military's health system, the Department of Defense, in a way, the country had to listen to surgeons during that time period. In my last few years of active duty service, I saw that changing. We were kind of entering this interwar period. And it's just the way the cycle goes. But I could tell that the military health system that I had deployed with and worked with for 15 or 16, 17 years was changing to an interwar health system, which is fine. Thank goodness. We finally figured out how not to get hurt, right? And that's good. Well, tell us about your most memorable case during one of your deployments. There were many that come to mind. The gut-wrenching cases I mentioned when we couldn't save a service member on the table. I mean, those will always be memorable. I won't ever forget those cases. Fortunately, there weren't many, but just the overwhelming emotion in the room when we would lose a U.S. service member on the table, those were all just awful and memorable. From a technical standpoint, I remember in Iraq in 2008, putting in aortic stent graft to seal a blunt aortic injury. And that was memorable because we were using very rudimentary imaging and endovascular devices, but we also did not have the capacity for left heart bypass or any cardiopulmonary bypass. And the aorta was torn and was going to rupture. And we had by that time developed the capability and some product downrange. So I will never forget placing an aortic stent graft in a blunt aortic injury in Balad in 2008. That comes to mind as a technical success, strange one, if you will, or unusual one, not strange, just unusual. But I think the most memorable cases are the ones you couldn't save. I think they stick with you forever, probably. When the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want them to say about your legacy in military medicine? I mean, my legacy, I was incredibly blessed to be part of a system for almost 30 years, a system of military physicians and surgeons who trained me and prepared me. And then the same individuals, the same system put me to work (laughs) in a once in a generation war in a way. And then that system allowed me to be a leader on the other side of my deployments. And I guess my legacy is just one of commitment for staying till the job is done until you've done everything you can do. As I look back, I had opportunities. By the way, my active duty service commitment was not 28 years. I remember coming to these crossroads where I could have exited the military. I think my legacy, I'd like it to be one where I'm remembered for staying in. I once gave a lecture on how do you lead in an organization when the most commonly uttered phrase is when you get out. I don't think it was so much me. It just was the timing, the mentors I had. I sort of turned that on its head and I get out when I'm done, when the work is done. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Colonel Dr. Todd Rasmussen on WarDoc's podcast. Todd, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to have the discussion, and thank you for your efforts to catalog all of these experiences, not just mine, but all the ones you've done with your work, too. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to WarDocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. WarDocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.